0: For decades, behavioral scientists have believed that newborns come into this world completely devoid of any personality or nature, sort of like a blank slate. And depending upon the environment in which the child is raised will determine the kind of person that child will become. They grow up into a loving, caring community. They will grow up to be loving, caring people. But if they grow up surrounded by hatred, crime, abuse, hardship, their environment is going to shape their lives. The environment stamps its unique characteristics on boys and girls during their developmental years. And so it's the nurture rather than the nature that forms a child's personality and values in life. But the question we want to ask and raise this morning is, is it nurture or is it nature? Does a person turn to crime because because within themselves, within their very nature, uh, they are evil or sinful people? Or are people basically good and turn to crime because they're surrounded by crime and by poverty? people turn to crime because of a poor family life and upbringing rather than from a flaw in the human spirit? Now, this debate was played out on the front pages of our, of our news and all over the news when years ago when we engaged in this war on terrorism. If you remember former President Bush at the time, he came out and said that he believed the terrorists were evil people. That is, at their very core of their being, they were evil. And thus, to combat terrorism, these terrorists needed to be hunted down, rooted out, and brought to justice, and basically annihilated. He spoke about the need for a change of heart for these people, for they are evil through and through. But he really got hit by the media and by the uh, the other side, those on the other side of the debate believed that these terrorists were basically good people who loved their families and communities but were forced into desperate measures to gain the world's attention to the needs and inequities in this world. And some even contended that we caused these terrorist attacks. And because, um, We cause them because we've not dealt with the underlying conditions that breed terrorism. Conditions like famine, hunger, the poor who see us wealthy people in the West and envy what we have. We've not dealt with the injustices and inequities in this world. And until we do so, the war on terrorism will continue. For until we eradicate world hunger, Until we all share in the wealth of this world, until we educate everyone on how to be outstanding world citizens, we're not going to win this war on terrorism. For the problems in our world, the problem in our nation, and in our inner cities is environmental. It is a person's nurture, not his nature, because man is basically good, but because of environmental challenges, he becomes antisocial and turns to crime. Same debate is being waged today over gun violence and drug use and, and crime in our inner cities. Many think that the problem with increased gun violence, murders, killings in Philadelphia and surrounding communities and the proliferation of drugs and alcohol use and abuse is due to the poor home environments and surroundings in which the teens are being raised. For, these, for them, the teens who turn to violence or drugs or life of crime, they're basically good, but who have been poisoned by the environment in which they've been raised. So the answer is, for them, education. The answer is the elimination of poverty. The answer is to ban guns and take guns away from private citizens. The answer is to get these te- teens involved in worthwhile, wholesome activities to take them off the streets, out of the neighborhood, away from their former friends, and put them in a new safe environment where they will not be surrounded by crime. For it's the teen's nurture, not his nature, which is the problem. Now, which is it? Is it nurture or is it nature? Is man born basically good and then corrupted by his environment? Or is man intrinsically evil, born with a bent toward sin and corruption? Which is it, nurture or nature? Now in the future, God is going to conduct his own research program to settle this question once and for all. It's not that God does not know the answer, because he does, his word, I believe, is very clear that the problem lies fundamentally deep within man. For in man's very nature, he's born not as a blank slate, not innocent or basically good, but every child is born a sinner, alienated from God and bent towards doing evil. We are not basically good people. The Bible says we've all sinned. And we've fallen short of the glory of God. We've sinned. Paul, quoting from the Old Testament, says that it is written. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips with whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their way, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul there strings together a number of Old Testament quotes about mankind and the very nature of man. And my friends, that's us. That's every one of us. None of us are righteous. No, not one, the Bible says. And one of the reasons we choose to sin is because we are sinners by nature. We've inherited the sin nature from our first parent, Adam. Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all have sinned. Paul goes on to say, therefore, as through one man's offense, came, uh, all, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous acts, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous." We were all made sinners by Adam's disobedience. And because of Adam's sin, God's judgment falls on all of us, resulting in our condemnation, which was death. Being separated from God for all eternity, or physical death as well, because the Bible says the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. And so we were not born neutral. We were not born innocent. All those little babies look so cute, they look so innocent, and, and so on. But we were all born with a sinful nature, inherited from our forefather Adam, and thus we have chosen to sin and rebel against God. But God also knows, God also knows that our environment does play a role. It does play a role. And in, in a sense, it's not either or, it's both and, but I think nature is foremost Uh, uh, Nurture does play a role, for we are sinners not only by nature, but we're also sinners by choice. And the environment in which we live or grow up in can affect the choices that we make. Growing up in a hostile environment surrounded by unsavory people does not make us sinners, but it certainly can bring out the sin which is in us. But the question is, how does God, how will God reveal to man his true nature? How will God reveal to man his true nature, whether it is nurture or nature? Well, first of all, God is going to create a perfect environment, a perfect environment. This perfect environment will be during the messianic kingdom, the millennial kingdom that we've been talking about, the thousand-year reign of Christ. Well, just think for a moment what this time is going to be like. First of all, when Jesus Christ returns in glory at the second phase of his second coming as the King of kings and Lord of lords, he will triumph over the armies of the Antichrist and the false prophet. He's going to defeat them. Revelation 19 reveals, And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him, who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image." These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on his horse. And All the birds were filled with their flesh. And so the evil army of the Antichrist and the false prophet, they're going to be defeated. They're going to be destroyed. And the Antichrist and the false prophet are going to be cast alive into hell into the lake of fire. But not just then. But Revelation chapter 20, verse 1, if you have your text, you can look at it. Verse 1 reveals that I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the keys to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him, so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. So the very source of evil in this world the one who enticed Adam and Eve to sin in the first place against God and thus introduced sin into the world and into the human race and the sinful nat- nature that has been passed on to man, man, the very source of evil, is captured. He's incarcerated for the duration of the kingdom age for 1,000 years. So that during the kingdom age, there's not going to be any external temptation. No solicitation to sin. No prompting from the spirit realm to sin. Nobody during the kingdom age is going to be able to say, the devil made me do it. Because the devil's not going to be around. He's going to be incarcerated. He's going to be locked up in the bottomless pit. As we saw in our study together, only born again, regenerate people, who follow Jesus Christ will enter into the kingdom. Jesus said that unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so a person needs to be born again. And so that in his second coming, the Jewish remnant are going to repent of their sins. They're going to look upon the one that they have pierced. They're going to repent of their sins. They're going to embrace Jesus Christ as the Messiah and as their Savior. And he's going to enter into a new covenant relationship with them whereby he will put his laws in in their hearts and in their minds, write them on their hearts. He will be their God. They will be his people. And he's going to give them the gift of the Spirit who will dwell within them. They will all know the Lord. They're going to know the truth. They're going to walk in the truth in obedience to the Lordship of Christ. These are mortal people that are going to enter into the kingdom. They will be joined by living Gentiles who demonstrated their faith in God by treating tribulation believers with compassion. They too will be born again and will enter into the kingdom. And so anybody with a mortal body going into the kingdom will be born again, what we would today call a born-again Christian. We're going to be coming back, but we're going to have glorified bodies. We're not going to be mortals. We'll have that glorified bodies. But there are going to be people living in mortal bodies entering into the kingdom. And children are going to be born to them during this kingdom age. Uh, They will be born into what we call today Christian homes. Surrounded by people who love the Lord, who are godly, who are filled with the Spirit, who are serving the Lord. They will have all the spiritual advantages of being surrounded by Christian parents and peers. But because they're mortals during the millennium, they're gonna live a long, 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 long time. Some will be influenced by not only Christian parents, but they're gonna have Christian grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents and go all the way back perhaps to the beginning of that thousand of years. And so they're gonna have a great Christian heritage. But like children born today in Christian homes, that doesn't automatically make them a Christian. So those born in these future messianic homes will have a choice to make as to whether they will personally accept Jesus Christ as their savior or Lord or whether they're gonna reject him. They'll have that choice. Jesus Christ himself will be ruling at this time, as we saw, he's gonna be ruling with a rod of iron. Under the kingdom law, what's sinful today will be deemed sinful in the future. The moral laws of God will be enforced so that righteousness and justice will prevail. No longer will people be oppressed by others. No longer will criminals overpower and control societies. For once in this world, there's going to be justice for all. A perfect moral society, as most will give their wholehearted allegiance to Jesus Christ. During this kingdom age, poverty and sickness will basically be a thing of the past. No one will know hunger or thirst. This will be a time that will be marked by unimaginable prosperity for all the people who are alive on earth. Everyone will share in the wealth and will bring their wealth to the king in in Israel. All will be elevated to the highest standard of living possible. The world will be at peace as the nations of this world are going to dismantle their military machines and they will no longer learn the art of war. They will no longer be a threat of terrorist attacks, gun violence, and the cities will cease. Indeed, it will be a time when there will be peace on earth, goodwill towards men. Now you would think, you would think if environment is what makes a man what he is, that we should have perfect people, at the end of the millennium. For they have experienced for 1,000 years heaven here on earth, the utopian society, in which hunger and disease are a thing of the past where inequities, and injustices, racism no longer exists, everything that behavioral scientists today say contribute and causes young people to turn to crime or terrorists to bomb cities and kill civilians, everything they say is wrong with society, all of that will be eliminated in the kingdom age. For man is going to be living in a perfect environment, with a perfect leader over them. But you know, into this perfect environment, at the end of the thousand year, God is going to once again introduce an evil outside influence. In other words, there's going to be the reintroduction of evil into this world. And that's indicated in Revelation 20, verse 3. Look what the text says it says and he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished but after these things he must be released for a little while that last phrase after these things he must be released for a little while and especially those words he must the ancient text and the greek text that is a very forceful word, indicating that this is necessary. It's necessary. It's a necessity for Satan to be released from prison so that he can once again deceive the nations of this world. But why? Why should God allow this to happen? Certainly, if man alone was prophetically writing the history of the world and was writing the book of Revelation, he would not bring back the archenemy after the glorious reign of Christ. The book of Revelation, though, is not the product of man's imagination, but rather revelation from God. And certainly if man was writing this, he would have locked him up and thrown away the key, never to let him out again. But God deems it necessary, essential, that Satan be released after a thousand years. Now, why is that? Well, it's part of God's experiment. It's part of a test. Test. Mankind living in a perfect environment, he needs to be tested to prove what is in his heart. Now, two years ago, (laughs) hello, So Almost two years ago, we began our study on God's plan for the ages by looking at a framework for understanding the unfolding of God's program called dispensationalism. Now, a dispensation is a distinguishable economy in the outworking of God's purpose. It's an economy in the sense that it emphasizes on how God will govern man, different ways in which God sought to govern man. It's distinguishable in that some features are distinctive to each dispensation and mark them as different from others. And it is the outworking of God's purpose. And God's purpose and his goal is not primarily the salvation of mankind, although that's part of it, but rather the manifestation of his glory, of God's glory. And we saw in our study together that there's six characteristics of a dispensation. There's a different different governing relationship between God and the world. In each dispensation, there's new responsibilities that are placed upon man in their obedience to God. There's new revelation that's given to uh, to man to affect the change. New orders given, new instructions imparted. And in every dispensation, there is a test. Will man respond favorably to how God rules and God governs? Now, unfortunately, in each dispensation uh, up to our current one, and even in our current one, man fails the test, which results in judgment upon mankind. In our study together, we've also differentiated seven distinct periods or dispensations. Innocence, which is from the time of creation to the fall of man, followed by conscience, human government, promise, law, grace, and finally, the kingdom. In each of these, there's a test. In the age of innocence, Adam and Eve were with untested creature holiness we're told that they could, not, they could eat of everything in the garden except for the tree in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the day that they eat thereof, they were going to die. They were living at that time in a perfect environment. They were living in a perfect environment. God himself walked in the cool of the, of the day in the Garden of Eden. They had intimate fellowship with God. And so the question was, would they obey God or would they op- obey Satan, the deceiver? Now, you know what happened? They ate the fruit. They failed the test. And their judgment was that they were expelled from the garden. This dispensation is followed by the age of conscience. Could man be governed strictly by their conscience with the law of God written on their hearts? But we we find that when we come towards the flood, man failed the test as man became so sinful, so wicked that God had to destroy mankind with a universal flood. After the flood, God sought to govern mankind through human government, and in the Noahic covenant, He sets up the foundation for human government, which is capital punishment—the taking of a criminal's life. Uh, if someone takes somebody's life, uh, they can take the government can take their life. But could man govern himself? Well, no, instead of spreading out and filling the earth like God had told them to do, man decided to build a city and a tower to symbolize them coming together to make a name for themselves. And so they failed to govern themselves. And as a result, at the Tower of Babel, God confounded their language so that they spread out as God originally commanded. God's next attempt to govern man was through a promise, promise that he made with Abraham. He promised him a land, a seed, and a blessing. He was to stay in the promised land, which God had given to him. They were to trust God to keep his promise and to provide for him. And sometimes they did in that period of time. Other times they did not. And in the end, they failed the test, ended up in Egypt under slavery. And God provided a deliverer, Moses, to enter into a new governing relationship, the period of time called the law. The dispensation of law. And God gave them 613 commandments. Some partially succeeded in living under the law, but no one perfectly kept it. Some refused to live by God's rules. They made their own. Many rebelled against God's standards, did just the opposite. They failed the test, and as a result, judgment came to the nation through the conquering Assyrians and Babylonians. The age of grace followed the law, the age in which we're now living. Christ has given us the law, his teaching to follow, but the test today is not whether we are obedient to the law of Christ, but rather what have we done with Jesus Christ? Have we accepted him as our Savior and Lord? Many of us have, and we make up his church today, believing Jews and believing Gentiles together in one body. But in the future, judgment is coming in the time of tribulation for those who reject Jesus as Savior and Lord, culminating in the battle of Armageddon and the defeat of the Antichrist and his forces. And this is going to usher in the final dispensation, the culmination of world history, and that is the kingdom age, the messianic kingdom. And the test in this kingdom age will be this. Will man living in a perfect society trust and obey the perfect ruler, Jesus Christ, or will they, if they had a choice, rebel against Christ and follow the lies of Satan? Is a positive, perfect environment enough to change a man? So what happens? Notice what our text says beginning of verse 7 says, Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up, On the breadth of the earth, and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophets are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and never. Now, I want us to note first of all that Satan's prison experience does not change his nature doesn't make him into a reformed satan. In fact, Jesus revealed Satan's true nature in John 8:44 when he says to the Pharisees, you are your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning, does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him when he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar, and the father of lies. See, at the very core of his being, his very nature, Satan is a liar. He is a deceiver. That is who he is. And from who he is flows what he does. He is the father of lies and deceptions. Currently, he is deceiving mankind into believing the lie concerning their spiritual well-being and the ways to heaven. He is currently spreading the lies that it doesn't matter what you believe, as long as you believe it sincerely, the truth that is personal, there's no such thing as absolute truth, so what is true to you does not necessarily apply to others, and that there are many, many, many ways to God. He's spreading the lies of evolution that man was not created by God and thus not answerable to their creator, but rather man evolved over millions and billions of years from a one-cell amoeba that life just happened by a cosmic explosion. He's deceiving the world into thinking that the answers to their problems are education or redistribution of wealthy majors in deception and will continue to do so during the tribulation when through his sidekicks, the Antichrist, he will deceive the world into following him and receiving the mark of the beast. He is in the spiritual misinformation business, spreading lies, half-truths, many sound, at times sound like the truth. So notice what Satan does immediately after being released from prison. It says in our text that he begins to deceive the nations who are in the four corners of the earth. He once again incites a rebellion against the rule of God. He returns to his old neighborhoods and begins to turn people away from obeying Christ's rule. Prison does not, did not change Satan's basic nature He's the same old Satan that he was when he was incarcerated a thousand years earlier. Still a deceiver, and still an archenemy of God. Many today debate the purpose of our criminal justice system. Some advocate that prisons should be primarily for punishment, where others look upon them as being places for Rehabilitation. Some believe that prisons should be so hard, not a nice place to visit, much less spend an extended stay there. So the way to curb crime is to make the punishments tougher, the sentences longer, and the conditions of prisons more deplorable. Others, however, advocate just the opposite. And prisoners need to learn skills so that they can be contributors to society when they're released. They need to learn how to survive and thrive in the real world. And they need to have the comforts of home while incarcerated. You know, have a TV and be able to watch TV and and have other electronics in their cells. They need to be treated with respect and with dignity. And what they need is education to be reformed. But how well has our prison system been in reforming prisoners and making them into good citizens? Some do learn. Some do learn from their consequences, and they do take advantage of the opportunities for job training and education while in prison. And when released, they're able to re-enter society. In fact, my alma mater, Appalachian Bible, has a Bible college in the in the prison down there, the maximum security prison. They just had five inmates graduate with a bachelor of arts in Bible, and they they're actually been then sent to other prisons. In the, 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 uh, in the system, because these are lifers, these are guys that aren't going to get out, but they're sent to other prisons to be like chaplains. So God's using, and there are people like that that have been saved and, and really get their life straightened out. And, and so it does work. But others, incarceration has just the opposite negative effect, not as they become hardened, revengeful, can't wait to get out to get even to those that put them in prison. That's Satan. He emerges from the abyss as a hardened criminal who can't wait to get out at the end of the messianic age so that he can once again seek to overthrow the powers of God and to sound an end to God's rule over the earth, which he considers to be his domain. And so imprisonment, if anything, makes Satan more determined. But I find something else has not changed as seen in the effect that the newly freed Satan has on mankind. And what has not changed is man's basic nature of being in rebellion against God that has not changed even though man has been living in a perfect environment. But note again what the text reveals in verse 8. It says, Satan will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. He gathered them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. Those entering the kingdom initially, as I said, will all be saved, but will have unglorified human bodies with the old sin nature still intact. Their children and grandchildren and great great grandchildren will all be born with a sinful Adamic nature and thus, indeed, a need of salvation. They will have opportunity, just like in every age, either to trust and obey Christ or to choose to disbelieve and rebel against Him. Many during this kingdom age will come to Christ and will be gloriously saved and become part of God's family. But many during this kingdom will feign obedience to Christ. They will be what we might call compliant, going along with everyone around them and worshiping and following Jesus, but not true believers or followers of Christ. They're living in a perfect moral world, and when they do so, their old sinful nature of flesh will rebel against the limitations that Jesus Christ imposes as he rules the world with a rod of iron. They're not going to be comfortable being around all these Christ followers. They're going to begin to question Jesus' right to rule over them. In fact, Zechariah 14 reveals that the nations of the world will be required to come to Jerusalem each year to worship the Lord of hosts and to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. But not all will. For Zechariah 14, 17 records, and it shall be that Whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. The family of Egypt will not come up and enter in. They shall have no rain. They shall receive the plague with which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all nations that do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So even at the end of the millennium in Satan's release, there is unrest in the world. They're chafing under the iron rule of Christ. They'll be like children today, and unfortunately like children today, some of whom grow up in Christian homes who live under the rule of their parents, who while living at home have to attend church, they come to church, they feign but perhaps a commitment to Christ, but who cannot wait until the day when they are no longer under their parents' roof and can be out on their own. And then they show their true colors. And in the same way, many in the kingdom who have gone along with the program, who have put up being surrounded by all these godly, holy people, cannot wait until they come out from under Jesus' rule. So when Satan is released and he is once again at work in this world, he finds a ready, receptive audience to his deception. In fact, a great number of people from the four corners of the way, or world, another way of saying from all over the world, are going to join Satan, their number being as the sands of the sea." Now John gives these enemies of the king of kings the symbolic title of Gog and Magog, naming them after the invasion forces that will assault Israel, either right before or soon after the start of the tribulation. We've looked at that in the past. Now some are confused by this. They believe that Ezekiel 38 and 39 describes this battle at the end of the millennium. But there are, however, significant differences which argue against the two being the same. Evasions differ in time period. Ezekiel thirty-eight, thirty-nine is before the tribulation. Revelation twenty after the millennium, and the participants with Ezekiel thirty-eight names specific Arab countries surrounding Israel, whereas Revelation twenty states that the armies come from all corners of the world. And so, in Revelation, the names I think are symbolic of the final enemies of Christ that are duped by Satan into attacking the community. Of the saints. It's interesting in Jewish rabbinic uh, writings in the Talmud, the expression Gog and Magog is used symbolically to refer to the nation spoken of in Psalm 2. You read Psalm 2, that's a messianic psalm that speaks of the messianic age, the millennium, uh, the the nations that are, are rebelling against God and against his Messiah. So I want to say there's nothing in their environment that they're able to blame for their rebellion. They're not going to be able to truthfully say that the reason they're turning against Christ is because their needs have not been met. That they became antisocial because they've not shared in the prosperity of others nor because of deplorable living conditions. Because none of this will be true. They cannot say that the reason is because there's injustices in the world. The only explanation as to why such a large number will fall for Satan's lies when they have lived in a perfect condition with a perfect just government is because there's something within man that is more in tune with a lie than with the truth. There's something within man that distrusts God and is rebellious against him. And Satan will appeal to the sinful, selfish human nature of man and he'll bring out the worst in man even in a perfect environment. So the fundamental problem with man is not his environment, but rather his innate sinful human nature. It's not something external, but internal. in the core of his being causes man to respond to Satan's temptation and pull. He would rather believe the lie than to believe the truth. Now note quickly the outcome beginning of verse 9. he says, They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints. And the beloved city and fire came down from heaven, out from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophets are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The rebels, along with Satan, will surround the beloved city of Jerusalem, ready to attack Jesus Christ and the saints who are there with him. But like the battle of Armageddon a thousand years earlier, this battle, too, will be short, one of the shortest battles on record, and will be, in reality, an execution rather than a battle. For as they're gathered there against the Lord and the saints' fire is going to fall down from heaven, and it's going to devour them. Sending fire from heaven is often God's way of judging sinners. Remember God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis 19, 24 reveals that the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of, out of the heavens. So far it's going to fall from heaven on those gathered against the Lord. It's going to swiftly, instantaneously, totally destroy them. Satan's forces will be physically killed. Their souls will go into the realm of punishment, awaiting their final sentencing to eternal hell, which will take place at the great white throne judgment to follow. But you know, this also marks the end of Satan's career. Satan has been on a downward spiral since he first rebelled against God before the creation of the world. Satan, who at one time lived in a perfect environment in the very presence of God as the covering cherub, rebelled against God because iniquity was found in him. He wanted to be like God. He wanted to be worshipped like God. And within his very being or nature, sinful pride developed, leading to his downfall. It was Satan's nature, not his nurture, that caused him to become the archenemy of God. Because of his pride, he was cast out of the Holy of Holies into heaven, onto the holy mountain of God, according to Ezekiel 28, verse 14. And from the holy mountain of God, he was next cast to the general precinct of heaven, Ezekiel 28, 13, and 14. And from the general precinct of heaven, he next was hurled down to the aerial and stellar regions of the universe where he is today. He today is the prince of the power of the air, according to Ephesians 2 2 and 3. He lives, he, he is in the, the dark spiritual forces that are at work in this world today. He still has access to heaven. We know that from Job chapter 1 and 2. But in the future, as we saw in our study, in the middle of the tribulation, he will be denied, denied access to heaven and will be cast from the aerial and stellar regions of this universe to the earth itself. And then at the end of the tribulation, he's going to be bound and cast into the bottomless pit. And now at the end of the kingdom age, going to be loose for a short time, lead the final rebellion against Christ's rule, and then he's going to be cast into the lake of fire. The place that Jesus said that God has prepared for the devil and his angels. And there he, along with the Antichrist and the false prophet, who a thousand years earlier had been cast into the lake of fire, They will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. Now may I say to you that fact that the Antichrist and the false prophet are still alive and being tormented after a thousand years when they are joined by Satan disproves the false teaching of annihilationism. The big word which teaches that after a person suffers for a short period of time and hell they cease. To exist no the torment in hell goes unchecked day and night forever and ever and ever just like eternal life in heaven for us is forever and ever in the presence of the Lord. The men and women living in this living during the messianic age living in a perfect world with a perfect world leader with perfect justice will be given a choice, just as we are given a choice today, a choice to either trust and obey the Lord or to disbelieve and to rebel against Christ's rule. Many will choose to follow Satan in the final rebellion to their own demise, demonstrating that the problem with mankind is not in society in which they live, but in the very nature which lives in them and which responds to the call of rebellion. Now, may I say this morning in closing, there's only, only one hope, I believe, for the human race. Only one hope. It's not in education, per se. It's not in the eradication of world hunger, or poverty, or disease. It's not the revitalization of our inner cities. It's not the renovation of our criminal justice and prison systems. It's not even in the reformation of our churches and the restructuring of our societies. The only hope I see in the world today is transformation of life that's possible through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Mankind needs a new nature. We need a new nature. We need to be changed from the inside out. Our lives transformed by the gospel of Christ. The Bible says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. And behold, all things have become new. The Bible reveals that when we trust Jesus Christ for our salvation, we become partakers of the divine nature. We have a new nature. God gives us a new heart. He puts a new core center of our being from which to operate in obedience to God. And as individuals, I believe, are transformed by the gospel of Christ, conditions in a community will change. And as communities are transformed, so nations are transformed, reaching the entire world. But it all begins with you and I, transformed by the gospel of Christ, changed from the inside out, affecting positively the people and society environment surrounding us. So I ask us this morning, do you know Christ as your personal Savior? And is your life being transformed? by the gospel of Christ. For my friends, I believe that is the only hope, the only hope for our world today.